October 16, 1846. It was a Friday in Boston. The day began very much the way the previous evening had ended for William Thomas Green Morton. In fact, it is very possible that one bled straight into the other. While it is not clear whether Morton slept that night, one thing is very clear. Morton was running late. He had received an invitation from John Collins Warren, the chief of surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital and one of the most prestigious surgeons in the U.S. to demonstrate his vaporized ether and, crucially, the inhalation device Morton had fashioned to deliver an effective dose for surgery, the one he was still tinkering with that very morning. Morton had spent the previous weeks prior to the 16th practicing, with great success, the administration of ether anesthesia on patients at his dental practice, and now he had received an invitation to show proof of this medical marvel in front of some of the world's most experienced and accomplished surgeons at one of the most preeminent medical schools in the world. Are you improving outcomes with SPHB? Continuous SPHB monitoring provides real-time visibility to changes or lack of changes in hemoglobin concentration between invasive blood draws and has been shown in multiple studies to help clinicians improve outcomes. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. The surgery where Morton would demonstrate his new discovery was scheduled for 10 a.m., but he was nowhere to be found, and the assembled crowd was getting restless. Many of those in the audience of the surgical theater at Mass General Hospital had been asked to attend without knowing why. To add to the mystery, Charles Frederick Hayward, the house surgeon at Mass General, had already completed the surgical preparations. The necessary preparations were made. The patient fastened upon the table. When Dr. Warren said to me, stop, we had promised Mr. Morton a chance. We will give him a few minutes more. Warren was intent on giving Morton a chance to show what this device and vaporized ether could do. But because of Morton's delay, Warren had to assure the audience that the wait would be worthwhile. Since many of you have not been informed for what purpose you have been assembled here, I shall now explain it to you. There is a gentleman who claims he has discovered that the inhalation of a certain agent will produce insensibility to pain during surgical operations with safety to the patient. I have always considered this an important desideratum in operative surgery, and after due consideration, I decided to permit him to try the experiment. While Warren was addressing the auditorium of confused onlookers, Morton raced along the Charles River towards Massachusetts General Hospital's Bullfinch Building, a fully granite, mostly gray hospital building, made to look like the classical structures more likely found in ancient Greece than in 19th century Boston. One medical student, Daniel Slade, described the building as having wide and airy halls 
and scrupulously clean and well-waxed floors. This was the home of the surgical theater at Mass General. As Morton arrived at the Bullfinch building, he walked up the granite steps onto the portico lined with classically styled pillars and entered into one of the beacons of medical advancement in America. He crossed the gleaming rotunda floor, ether device in hand, ready to demonstrate to some of the best American surgeons the incredible potential of ether anesthesia. Upon reaching the surgical theater, Morton walked onto the floor of the room, surrounded by medical students and a slew of intrigued medical professionals sitting around the small, semicircular auditorium, rising higher above the operating table with each new row. At the top, there was a dome-shaped roof with a skylight to better illuminate the patients and surgeries below. And on this fateful day in the fall of 1846, standing beneath that dome and skylight, Morton faced a packed house, eager to see whether this inhalation substance was worthy of the wait. He approached center stage, where the chief of surgery, Warren, was waiting beside the patient for the case, Edward Gilbert Abbott. Well, sir, your patient is ready. Abbott, just 20 years old, was reclined on the surgical table, waiting to have a tumor removed from the left side of his jaw. Morton took his hand and explained that he would use this ether device to ease his pain during the surgery to remove the tumor. He then asked, Are you afraid? No. I feel confident that you will do precisely as you tell me. It was 10.25 a.m., Morton did not know for certain that his hastily built inhaler would do the job properly. See, while he had successfully used ether for surgery, he had never done so with this particular instrument. The device in question was a glass orb containing a sponge soaked with ether. It had two openings, one to apply the ether to the sponge, one to breathe in the ether vapors. Morton's hands were shaking as he raised the ether instrument to the young man's face. Breathe deeply and slowly. After a few minutes had passed, Abbott was sedated. Morton turned back to Warren. Your patient is ready, sir. Warren, accustomed to the necessity for speed in surgery prior to this day, wasted little time making an incision into the young abbot's neck and removing the tumor. All told, the surgery lasted 10 minutes. Abbott remained still and quiet until the very end of the procedure when the ether anesthesia effect started to wear off. By the time Abbott came to, he had no idea the procedure had been completed and claimed he didn't feel any pain during the operation. Warren turned to the assembled crowd 
Gentlemen, this is no humbug. He had done it. He finally delivered on the long promised hope of painless surgery. Exactly 175 years ago, William Thomas Green Morton changed the world forever. Monitor hemoglobin continuously and non-invasively with Massimo SPHB. Studies have shown that SPHB hemoglobin monitoring may help clinicians reduce blood transfusions in both low and high blood loss surgeries. Visit Massimo.com to discover how SPHB can help your blood management initiatives. Welcome back to Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, and welcome to Season 3 of the show. This season, we will be retelling the story of the beginning of anesthesia and modern medicine with a slight twist. We want to revisit the history of the specialty of anesthesiology, but also to reimagine what happened to those early pioneers based on what we now know about anesthesia. We plan to tell the story behind modern day breakthroughs into how anesthesia really works on the brain to see just how far we've come but also how much more we don't understand about this medical miracle that helped change the world. One surgery, one patient, one breath at a time. Happy Ether Day. I'm your host, Michael DePoe Wilson, and I'm proud to finally say this is Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, Season 3, Episode 1, October 16th, 1846. Sponsored by Massimo and Medtronic. Morton's success in demonstrating ether anesthesia was the most notable and public chapter in the long and continuing story of medical advancement. The discovery of ether anesthesia was not a sudden achievement. It was the results of incremental gains in chemical and biological processes by dozens of scientists from Raymond Lully, the Spanish alchemist who first distilled sulfuric ether in 1275, to Joseph Priestley, the English experimenter who developed nitrous oxide in 1774, to Humphrey Davy, and finally to Morton and the Ether Day Triumph. And it's worth diving below the surface of the historical narrative to find out what exactly was happening on that monumental day. Dr. Baron Metz is especially adept at deciphering the details of this history. Dr. Metz is an anesthesiologist at Penn State University, Milton S. Hershey Medical Center, and professor and chair of anesthesiology and perioperative medicine at the Penn State College of Medicine. He is also the author of two books on anesthesia history. The first is titled Waking Up Safer, an Anesthesiologist Record, which was published in 2018. And the second is Leadership in Anesthesia, Five Pioneers of the Deadly Quest for Surgical Insensibility, which was published in 2020. And according to Dr. Metz, there is a reason that we remember Morton above the rest of those pioneers who contributed to this discovery. Morton's great strength was that he was able to proleticize about anesthesia, and he was a fantastic promoter 
of uh, anesthesia. And as a result of that, it took off around the world. It was Morton's self-promotion and sheer determination to be recognized for success that lifted the profile of ether from a mere entertainment gimmick to a crucial tool for medical advancement. But Morton's efforts did not start on October 16, 1846, and it was not a mere stroke of luck that he had received the invitation from Hayward and Warren. He was very well organized, this man. And so what he first did, he advertised along the Boston Wharf, asking for any volunteer to be paid $5 to come and submit themselves to his anesthetic or this, this ether that he was uh, trying to uh, use. That night, a patient of his or a patient arrived with a very, very sore tooth by the name of Eben Frost. And so Morton said, ha, come right in. You know, <laughs> we're ready. So um, they, they brought him into the room, sat him down in a chair. There were a few people gathered around, including Albert Tinney, who was a journalist. And, um, of course, what he did, he applied the ether to his handkerchief, which is the way he did it, put it over Eben Frost's uh, face. Eben Frost then inhaled the ether and became completely unconscious. And, and Morton pulled out the tooth quickly. The first general anesthetic had been administered. Albert Tinney, the journalist, noted all the facts, and they published this in the local newspaper. Yes, and of course, what happened next was that um, somebody by the name of Henry Bigelow, who was a well-known surgeon at the Massachusetts General Hospital, must have read this newspaper article and went to observe Morton to see how he did this. And Morton actually practiced, about, uh, it is said, 37 times before he got an invitation to come and demonstrate again at the fateful Massachusetts General Hospital. Morton used some good old-fashioned marketing and promotion to earn the invitation to demonstrate ether anesthesia at Mass General Hospital. But it wasn't just Morton's persistence or the novelty of his approach to ether that garnered that invitation. No. The promise of anesthesia, ether or otherwise, had long been the holy grail for surgeons, and John Collins Warren was chief among those in the profession eager to find the solution to pain in surgery. He was very short of stature, but long in the field of surgery. And as a result of that, he had long wondered and worried about the excruciating pain that surgery caused. So much so that some people would prefer suicide or death rather than have surgery. I mean, it was so excruciating. And so surgeons had been looking for uh, this phenomenon for a very long time. Morton's demonstration was not necessarily expected to be a success, though. No one had ever successfully demonstrated the use of anesthesia for surgery in this setting a setting that could propel its use into the mainstream of medical practice of the time. And, just like so many ambitious inventors before him, just about everyone expected Morton to fail. His wife had told him the night before, you know, if you kill this patient, you'll be held up for manslaughter. This sense of failure was not merely conceptual for Morton, though. Just one year earlier, another prominent scientist was publicly humiliated trying to prove at Mass General Hospital, that nitrous oxide could be an effective anesthesia. Horace Wells was in that same amphitheater, at least at the same hospital, and with probably J.C. Warren, who was the chief surgeon of the time. 
And at that time, he was humbugged out of the room. So, you know, when Horace Wells failed with uh, that first nitrous oxide anesthetic two years previously, everybody said humbug, 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 humbug. And uh, Horace Wells, and of course, you know, he, he, he felt so uh, impugned, ignominious. He, he slunk out of the uh, OR at that time and actually went and closed his dental practice in Boston and, and, and went over to New York City and unfortunately had an untimely death by suicide. But as we've covered, Morton was successful, against all odds, it seemed, and he was hungry for more. I, I think p- part of it was um, his personality. I mean, obnoxious as he was, um, he wasn't going to get bogged down in details, and, um, and he was bold. This is Dr. Catherine E. McGoldrick. She is the Emerita Professor and Chair of Anesthesiology and the Associate Dean for Student Affairs at the New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York. She retired in 2020. Dr. McGoldrick highlights something unique about Morton. Morton's lack of attention to detail is precisely the reason he was arriving late to Mass General Hospital, and likely the reason he was still working on his ether device the morning of the demonstration. But those deficiencies did not derail Morton's success in demonstrating ether anesthesia, nor did they prevent Morton from pursuing further gains from that success? As you know, he tried to patent um, ether. Uh, he had patent 4848, and, and there was outrage in the medical community. And the, the patent was granted, but the medical community was so furious that such a humane um, tool, if you will, um, could be patented that um, the patent was never enforced. And then Morton backed off a little bit and said, "Oh no, no, I didn't mean I didn't mean to profit from it, you know, with money. God forbid. I just wanted to keep it out of the hands of unsavory individuals and unqualified individuals, <laughs> which of course was nonsense because shortly after that, he he petitioned Congress for $100,000, which was a lot of money in those days." Morton was a self-promoter and one of the very best in all of medicine at the time. Here's Dr. Metz explaining how Morton turned his triumph on Ether Day into a fully-fledged business opportunity. Morton promoted it. So what he really wanted to do is he realized that this was a money-making endeavor. And so he created his uh, Morton's inhaler. And he licensed this throughout the United, uh, northeast of the United States. And what he did further was um, he, um, he basically exercised the franchise. He would train people. He had a kind of locum anesthesia service. They would have, they would take an order for his uh, Morton inhaler and he would send them pamphlets on how to administer this, this agent. And so he would then franchise, um, this, this capacity for administering this anesthetic throughout the Northeast of, uh, uh, the United States. Morton was not alone in trying to pursue professional and financial success from his invention. Henry Jacob Bigelow was another house surgeon at Mass General Hospital who also had a role in making sure Morton was invited to demonstrate ether anesthesia. And he was interested in developing his own legacy based on Ether Day. So he went to work publishing this medical discovery in the literature. Bigelow was actually the puppet master behind this, this attempt to uh, prolesitize around anesthetic uh, anesthesia um, around the world. And so he wrote the first paper 
Henry Bigelow wrote the first paper describing this use of anesthesia by Morton, which then was written in what is today known as the New England Journal of Medicine, and which was then sent across the, channel, uh, across the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, in the ship Acadia, and to arrive in London less than four weeks after the event. The news of Morton's success on Ether Day spread around the world relatively quickly for the time, and it was news of a new era in medicine, and it set the world of surgery and the new medical profession of anesthesiology on a rapid pace of trial and innovation and medical advancement for nearly two centuries. As for Morton himself... I should mention, you know, I, I've said a lot of uncomplimentary things about uh, Morton, but one thing that he did was good was he, he joined the uh, Army of the Potomac during the Civil War, and he actually um, uh, anesthetized, uh, the guesstimate is about 2,000 soldiers on the battlefield. He was at the Battle of Fredericksburg and a few other major battles. And so he, he took care of 2,000 uh, people who, who um, he relieved their pain, which is, 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 you know, was more than decent of him. Um, and, and I do know that, that when, he, when he died, he, he was with his wife in, in Central Park, and all of a sudden, he, it was a hot day in um, July, and all of a sudden, he, he just felt excruciatingly warm, and he jumped into that little lake they have in Central Park. And his wife knew something was terribly wrong, and, and she saw to it that he was taken to um, uh, St. Luke's Hospital. And he died there, obviously. He had had a, a, a stroke. And um, the emergency room doc recognized him. And, and he said to everybody standing around, this man has done more for humanity than basically any of us will ever do. One hundred and seventy-five years ago, the demonstration of ether anesthesia finally unlocked the true potential of modern medicine. It was no longer about barber surgeons using bloodletting or alcohol to dull the pain of tumor extractions. Now surgeons had the time and, dare I say, the calm to focus and make precise incisions without the echo of screams or the tensing of muscles from their patients. And yet, it still was not understood, even after Morton's regular use of ether gas as an anesthesia, exactly why ether worked, or even how ether worked. And for much of the history of anesthesiology, it has been a story of empirical trial and error, not a mastery of human biochemistry and neuroanatomy. But now, thanks to the work of several leading neuroscientists and anesthesiologists, the truth of anesthesia and the human brain is becoming much more clear and defined. And at the forefront of these recent advancements in neuroscience and anesthesia is none other than Dr. Emery Brown. The drugs have a very profound effect on the brain. They, they hijack the circuits and they make them oscillate in these very, very regular ways. Dr. Brown is the Edward Hood Taplin Professor of Medical Engineering and the Professor of Computational Neuroscience at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. He is also the Professor of Health Sciences and Technology at MIT and the Warren M. Zappel 
professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Yes, the same Mass General where Morton demonstrated his ether anesthesia. He is also the director of the Harvard-MIT Health Sciences and Technology Program and the associate director of the Institute for Medical Engineering and Science at MIT. Dr. Brown is also an investigator at the Pacao Center for Learning and Memory in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. Dr. Brown is one of the leading researchers trying to understand the intricate details of how anesthesia interacts with the brain, and he's one of a relatively small group of scientists taking a new approach to answering this centuries-old mystery. I didn't start off as an anesthesiology researcher. And I'm a statistician. I got more interested in this as I got more interested in neuroscience and signal processing for neuroscience. And I realized that the, the concepts and systems neuroscience should be, should be brought to bear in anesthesiology to try to help understand how the drugs are working and to think about more principled ways of using them as well as coming up with new ideas for, for doing anesthesia. So in a nutshell, the approach that we've taken is what's called systems neuroscience. So that's to try to study how circuits in the brain work. And then in this case, how drugs act on those circuits to produce the altered states of arousal, which are the components of anesthesia or general anesthesia. This is a departure in some sense from the way a lot of the work has been done up until now. The scientific basis for anesthesia was in some respects secondary to the more obvious and important patient outcomes. To Morton and his contemporaries, ether anesthesia was a success. It was just black and white, without much consideration for any of the gray areas. It's possible, even likely, that they didn't know how much they didn't know. Mainly, that they were unaware of the dynamic effect ether was having on young Mr. Abbott's brain. Our brain oscillations are part of the mechanism that are used to control communication in the brain. And they're basically currents. They're currents that are generated because the brain is, is this huge electrochemical process. And when these oscillations are within a certain range, they allow us to, the parts of our brain to communicate and carry out the normal functions that we typically do. While it is tempting to believe that anesthesiology has advanced far beyond those early days of discovery, it is not quite that simple. The drugs we use, in a sense, are still within the ether era. Dr. Beverly A. Orser is a professor and the chair of the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine at the University of Toronto, where she is also a professor of physiology on the Timberty Faculty of Medicine. She is the co-director of the Perioperative Brain Health Center at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto, and she is a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, as well as an international member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and Medicine. Dr. Orser is another one of those leading researchers seeking answers to that crucial question. The overall goal is to understand how the drugs are changing brain function. And the reason we're interested in this is, first of all, it's probably, to me, the most interesting questions in the, in the field of anesthesiology. It's, it is the fundamental question. Throughout human history, leading up to Ether Day, the question was always focused on what could be done to anesthetize patients, to remove the pain. And the events of Ether Day, and many other crucial breakthroughs like it, have answered that question again and again. And we are still finding new answers to that question. So the, the history of anesthesia goes back to earlier, earliest times. So people knew that they could use 
alcohol or wine from a plant called the mandrake plant to alter consciousness. Um, and Nero's army, uh, you know, the physician was accredited with coining the term anesthesia uh, without sensation. I think Indigenous peoples also had an anesthetic pharmacopoeia, but it was all, all these drugs were used empirically. And in fact, we use them empirically. You can use these drugs without having much insight about their molecular mechanisms, and that is absolutely true. Um, we've learned a great deal about how to use them safely, how to mitigate the side effects, how to protect the breathing system, ensure cardiovascular stability. You don't need to know the molecular basis to use these drugs safely. But that said, they're not good enough. Not good enough. Answering the what question is no longer good enough. Early anesthesia pioneers were focused on finding the agent that could make anesthesia a reality. They didn't have time to worry about the rest. The goal was to remove pain and improve surgery. But today, researchers like Dr. Orser and Dr. Brown are looking to answer another question. How? As in, how does anesthesia actually work? Drugs that we have available, it's all been serendipitous. You know, we use them on an empirical basis. Right. Uh, we don't understand the mechanisms. And uh, they were found to be effective, tested in clinical use, and it, it now administered as anesthetic drugs. There weren't targeted um, pharmacological approaches. I mean, the molecules were tweaked to be optimized. But just like you said, we can administer them without understanding their major target receptors. And we're kind of retro-engineering what these drugs do in an effort to understand their main target receptors. So anesthetic research is a lot of retro-engineering back to what are the key components that achieve this desired state so we can build forward. So sevoflurane, ether, propofol, it's all the same story. You know, yeah, we we're getting a, a good understanding of how these things work, but they were never designed for a particular behavioral endpoint. So how do we transition from consciousness to unconsciousness? How do the drugs cause all the different behavioral endpoints they do, which allow patients to tolerate surgery? So they not only cause loss of consciousness, they cause um, loss of memory, amnesia, analgesia, uh, immobility, so you don't move in response to the painful stimulus. And they also change the autonomic nervous system, our ability to respond with um, change in heart rate and so forth. Um, yeah, so that's the overall goal, is to understand how the drugs are changing brain function. It's probably, to me, the most interesting questions in the, in the field of anesthesiology. It's, it is the fundamental question. Let's understand how they work uh, with the expectation that we, in the future, will, be, will do better. Dr. Orser and Dr. Brown and dozens of other researchers in this field are in the process of answering that question. And those answers will have the potential to send us into a new era in anesthesia care, a new era in medicine. And this is the focus of this season of The Etherist, Ether Day Revisited. We will explore in more detail how much science has progressed in explaining Morton's success with ether anesthesia and where the current research is pointing us in the future. The history of this day contains the successes and failures of many well-intentioned medical scientists who for centuries nearly discovered the secret antidote to pain. 
Many names could be mentioned in the long line of experimentation and breakthroughs in the science of anesthesia, from opium to nitrous oxide to ether gas. Morton wasn't even the first person to demonstrate the true potential of ether. On March 30, 1842, four and a half years before Ether Day, a physician in Jefferson, Georgia, by the name of Crawford Long, used ether on a towel to sedate a patient for the purposes of extracting a tumor. The patient was James M. Venable, a dentistry pupil, who was shocked by the success of ether. I commenced inhaling the ether before the operation. I did not feel the slightest pain and could not believe the tumor was removed until it was shown me. Long continued to use ether anesthesia but he did not publish his findings until learning that Morton was seeking a patent for his discovery of the same use of ether. Morton is still credited with his ether day demonstration and the rapid adoption of ether anesthesia that followed around the world. But Long's contributions to the discovery of ether anesthesia have also been recognized with the celebration of Doctor's Day every March 30th. The legal disputes over who originally discovered ether anesthesia grew heated over the years, as many scientists and clinicians believed they had contributed a key element to its discovery. In many cases, they were right, but the struggle took a toll on Morton. He died in 1868 at the age of 49, 22 years after making one of the greatest contributions to medicine that the world would ever know. He was buried in Boston, and on his tombstone, there's an epitaph which reads, Inventor and revealer of inhalational anesthesia, before whom in all time surgery was agony, by whom pain in surgery was averted, since whom science has control over pain. Thank you for listening. And if you are enjoying this season of The Etherist so far, please subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. If you really like what you're hearing, please consider sharing it with your colleagues too. We would really appreciate it. Episode 2 will be out on October 26th. This season of The Etherist was created by me, Michael DePoe Wilson along with James Pruden, our editorial director. It was edited by Ken Christensen. The music comes from Blue Dot Studios. A special thank you to our wonderful voice actors, James Pruden, Justin Kabak, Sam Steinfeld, Donald Pizzi, and Ken Christensen. The rest of our team includes Blake Dennis, Martin Barbieri, Kwang Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, Kristen Janicone, and Lucia Scanlon who all contributed greatly to the making of this season of The Etherist. A special thanks to our sponsors, Massimo and Medtronic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>